It's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jennifer Medina. Jennifer Medina is a reporter and national correspondent for the New York Times. Since the election, her coverage has focused on the ways the immigration policies have impacted politics and lives in Southern California. Over the last several years, she's traveled from California's Imperial Valley to the backroads of the Central Valley and written about gentrification in Boyle Heights and labor violations in Beverly Hills. Please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Ms. Jennifer Medina. Thank you all so much for coming. I have the honor of introducing all of our panelists. I'll start uh, right here with Mary. Stephen Chung is the president of the World Trade Center Los Angeles. He previously served as Los Angeles Secretary General of Foreign Affairs and Trade under Mayor Eric Garcetti and as the Director of International Trade for the Port of Los Angeles. Cindy Carcamo covers immigration for the Los Angeles Times and was previously the paper's Arizona Bureau Chief and National Correspondent, focusing on the border and immigration issues in the Southwest. Jim McDonald is Los Angeles County Sheriff. His department provides police services for more than 10 million residents and manages the largest jail system and court system in the country. Roberto Suro is a researcher, journalist, and director of the USC's Tomas Rivera Policy Institute, where he examines immigration policies and public opinion in the United States. He is also the founder and former director of the Pew Hispanic Center in Washington, D.C. So we live in what is arguably the most immigrant-heavy city, county, and state in the country, and arguably could also be seen as the state that has the most welcoming policies for immigrants, including those who are undocumented. And the question we really want to consider tonight is how the Trump era changes life here in LA, where more than half of all uh, residents were born elsewhere, or excuse me, one, more than one, a third of all, of all residents were immigrants, and more than half of children have at least one parent who's an immigrant. And Stephen, I'd like to start with you. You mentioned briefly when we were talking backstage that you immigrated here yourself as a kid. How do you think uh, life has changed in the Trump era for immigrants? Well, um, first, I, I think uh, LA has been a, a fantastic location to welcome uh, international visitors as well as foreigners uh, to call this place a home. So as one of the 3.5 million foreign-born residents out of the 10.2 million people living in, Cal uh, in, in Los Angeles County, um, it's really that fabric of, of, of uh, what makes Los Angeles great. And I think um, with some of the, the issues that hopefully we'll be discussing later today, including the RAISE Act that uh, President Trump has uh, uh, proposed, um, they will be getting rid of some programs that are very vital to this diversity. So personally, I was born in Hong Kong. I immigrated to the United States based on a program, a, diver a diversity lottery program. So literally, our family won the lottery to come to the United States. And uh, for a person who came from Hong Kong, didn't speak a lick of English, uh, I remember when I was uh, eight, uh, I thought thank you was one word. So I would go around saying thank you, you. And <laughs> you know, from that point till now where I've been given the opportunity to serve the mayor of Los Angeles, two mayors of Los Angeles, to represent Los Angeles as international ambassador and to work for a nonprofit, the World Trade Center Los Angeles, to really represent Los Angeles internationally to attract additional investors. That's what this country and that's what this county is all about. So I think there's a, a lot of great concern from my part and a lot of our constituents that uh, an anti-immigrant and uh, uh, a more closed off um, uh, and restrictive viewpoint might not be good for our economy. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be talking a lot more about that, but we'll stop there for now. 
Roberto, let me ask you from your perspective, what do you think has already changed um, since Trump has taken office, particularly here in California and L.A.? Well, I mean, I think uh, undoubtedly the most dramatic change um, has been the experience of people who uh, might have reason to fear removal, particularly anybody who uh, is unauthorized, certainly, and uh, also uh, legal non-citizens who may in the past have uh, committed offenses which expose them to removal. And um, it's been a period of very distinct fear in a lot of communities. Um, more, more fear, I believe, over the last six months than actual um, than actual pain in terms of the number of removals, but it's um, the atmosphere in um, in in a lar for uh, the way of living uh, for a large number of residents uh, of this area has changed quite demonstrably in the last six months. I mean, their attitudes towards life uh, have changed in response to uh, a perceived threat and a very real. Uh, an expressed hostility. Cindy, you cover the immigrant community broadly day in and day out. What do you um, see as some of the biggest fears? Is it about deportation? Is it about um, hate crimes? What do you think the fear ultimately is about? I think, well, I think I agree with Roberto in regards to um, perception versus reality as well, in regards to removals. Um, I, I think that there's definitely more anxiety um, and uh, in the immigrant population, especially like Roberto said, in regards to people who are in the country without legal status. I did a story, but also with uh, legal residents. I did a story not too long ago about legal residents not wanting to leave um, the U.S. to visit family because they thought they'd get hassled um, on their way back, uh, you know, in different ports of entry, like at LAX or yeah, SFO or wherever. Um, so there's definitely... Ooh, there's definitely this perception um, that people um, will get hassled more um, and that, uh, let's say, if someone has an order for, of removal, that um, their, their time is coming up. But, but, I, but I also want to stress that I think that um, the immigrant population is, uh, and, and people who are in the country without legal status tend to be very resilient people. And, um, and I think that that's kind of been lost in the conversation, that um, it, it takes a certain kind of person to immigrate, and, um, and it takes someone usually who's uh, very courageous <laughs> and, um, and is willing to make a drastic shift in their lives, right? And, um, and so I think that really um, a lot of people that I've spoken with kind of just see Trump as another obstacle, um, you know, they've, they, they have a lot on their plate. It's not just fear of deportation. You know, I, I was talking actually with um, one lady today who's in the country uh, without legal status. And she came in November. And um, I was just asking her, I'm like, hey, so, you know, how are things going? And she's pretty confident. Um, she's, she says she lives in Glendale. She feels safe. Um, she, uh, she's actually more worried about not being able to find a job. Um, than Trump. <laughs> so I think, that, I think that that's really basic. I think that that's something that um, maybe we haven't been stressing enough, that these are populations that have a lot going on anyway. It's very vulnerable populations. And, and Trump is just another obstacle to overcome, perhaps, especially the rhetoric. Um, 
Um, I know that Chief Beck has spoken pretty publicly and repeatedly about seeing a drop in crime rate that he attributed to fear of Trump. Is that something that you've seen from reports that you're looking at and what, what are ways that you are seeing the impact of this already? Yeah, not a drop in crime rate as much as a drop in some reporting right. uh, from some of the people who are, uh, share that anxiety um, you know, that's been expressed here by the panel. Certainly we do see that. I, get to, I go out and speak to as many groups as I possibly can uh, in an effort to allay that anxiety uh, because there is a, a rhetoric out there that the police are an arm of immigration. Uh, we have worked, I've been on this job in Los Angeles between LAPD, Long Beach PD, and now the sheriff for 36 years. And we have worked very hard throughout that time to be able to develop and build on a foundation of trust with all of the communities uh, throughout the county and beyond. And so we are, I, I think, in a, in a very good place to be able to move forward uh, with that trust we have. Uh, the rhetoric is not helping it. Uh, the reality is that in California, the police, uh, local police, sheriffs, uh, state police, do not uh, participate in immigration enforcement. And, and that's, the, you know, that's the way it is. It's hard to get over the impression that some have that we do, we do that. And so as much as we can talk about that, I want to be able to, to do that, assure people that we're there, we need to be approachable. People can only be safe and, and have a safe community if uh, everybody in our community, all of our communities, feel that uh, they can report a crime as a victim, they'll come forward as a witness. If that, if that ceases to happen, then our system does not continue to work. Public safety is jeopardized. Can you say a little bit more about what um, kinds of crimes you've seen drops in reporting or cooperations of witnesses? Yeah, we're still looking at some of the numbers. What, uh, what Chief Beck had talked about were sexual assault crimes, domestic violence crimes, but I think that uh, you know, while those, those may be good examples, there's also uh, evidence that you know, there may be some other crimes that uh, are not being reported. And it goes back to that anxiety that, uh, you know, that some have, and I think you know, because of the rhetoric that we've heard for the last uh, number of months, that the uh, the police, uh, you know, ICE and the police are one and the same, which uh, is not true at all. Can any of you speak a little bit more to what Cindy just alluded to, this notion that people have a lot on their plate and anti-immigrant rhetoric is just sort of one more thing. Do any of you have a sense of how people's day-to-day -day lives are changing? Are they keeping people, keeping their kids home from school? Are they not opening businesses? Um, are they not buying homes? What what ways are people's real um, lives being impacted? We, we have anecdotal reporting, and it's very hard to measure. But there's, and, it, and it's also hard to know uh, how much is a matter of initial impressions. Um, the, the administration came on very strong on this topic, uh, along with others, and there was a period of a very substantial shock, and it's hard to tell whether it's worn off, but there were reports of people of, of shopping declining and people going out less. Um, um, the reporting, the interaction with the authorities, the reporting of crimes, complaints, um, some, um, some indications, I mean, the other, um, indication that we have certainly from the beginning the first few months of the administration is a decline in the number of people traveling 
I mean, there, there, that seems to have been quite marked at least January, February, March. Uh, many fewer people um, decided to travel north without authorization. That may, that may have eased off. So, I mean, it's hard to tell, uh, and it'll take quite a while to know for sure whether um, the popular reaction was um, something dramatic sudden and temporary or whether we're talking about lasting changes in behavior. Um, but there's, it, there's so much publicity around um, the administration's attitudes towards immigration and those attitudes are so dramatic on so many fronts. Whether you're talking about refugees, legal immigrants, unauthorized immigrants, it's now really across the board. Um, every part of the flow uh, of immigrants to the United States pretty much in one way or another um, has been uh, assaulted uh, to some degree and people take that personally. I mean, and it's put in personal terms. Um, this is what's, what's, what's really dramatically different, um, leaving the policies aside, um, is um, the very personalized kind of rhetoric that we're now getting used to coming, the entire world is getting used to, coming from our president, has been directed, uh, was directed maybe first and most forcefully um, at this population. Um, and I think, you know, it's it, part of the process of accommodating and trying to understand what, what that means, uh, how much of it's bluster, how much of it's real, um, how much do you have to be afraid, how much can you just sort of move along. But... Uh, that's true about a lot of things, like you know, <laughs> nuclear wars and things like that. You know, <laughs> it's hard to know what to take seriously. <clears throat> LA is really dependent on uh, a lot of our international visitors because uh, I think last year we recorded over over 47.5 million visitors coming to LA County and the LA region, and they spent a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars on tourism, uh, and that's why we're able to sustain theme parks like. Uh, the Harry Potter ride and, and even in, in, in Orange County for Disneyland. So it's really economic driver for us. But we have seen a, a decline since January, uh, some of those travelers, because they now have a, a choice. Uh, are they welcomed or are they not? And some of, that, some of that perceptions that they're not welcomed and also the fear that they might be stopped at uh, uh, the, the border crossing and possibly there might be some uh, issues whether their cell phones are going to, uh, they have to release the, the password and different things. So just the rumors itself, sometimes when they're deciding whether to go to Canada or the United States, that might be a better option for them or they might want to go uh, elsewhere. So for us, this is actually a long-term effect that we have to really look at later on. Because once you have less tourists coming in, then you're not going to have the demand to fill your hotel rooms. When those numbers are not adding up later on a year, two years down the line, then you're not going to have the investors wanting to build additional hotels. Construction jobs will go down. Same thing with uh, tourism aspect, you know, in terms of the, the theme parks. So, and of course, when it comes directly to LAX, the more passengers are flying to LAX and going through, you have more airlines that want to actually invest and do direct nonstop flight from our, our city to other cities as well. And not only do you basically create the, the, the avenue for your passengers to go back and forth, you also have cargo space underneath these planes. And that's goods movement that people don't think about. So the long-term impact is not just one fold. There's so many aspects that we're thinking about. So again, for, for me, I'm cautiously optimistic that things are picking back up a little bit and hopefully they'll see places like Los Angeles are really, welcoming the international visitors and we want 
we want them to come, we want them to spend the money, we want their money. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever says no to money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, let me push that one step further and be less diplomatic about it. Um, I mean, the, the, the Trump policies, when you look at them, the full array of them, if you, you start with the notion of cutting the legal flow in half and, and subjecting everybody who's unauthorized to removal, it's an existential threat to the business model for Los Angeles and California. I mean, this, this city functions based on a set of fairly generous open policies towards immigration. You change those policies as dramatically as this administration says it intends to, and the business model doesn't work. I mean, it just doesn't, it is an excess, this city does not exist the way we currently know it. It is a fundamentally, drastically different and much less prosperous place. Um, and would require reinventing the whole way we go about constructing a metropolitan economy uh, with those rules. So it, it's, it's pretty profound and, and um, in terms of, you know, if these things went into effect, which is, you know, there's, there's reason to believe that they won't, but. Can any of you talk a little bit about what um, city officials, um, business leaders, advocates, all of those different kinds of, of groups and leaders can and are and should be doing to sort of counteract that? Uh, yeah, I'll touch base on it. Uh, I think doing, doing what we can do as it relates to uh, being open, being transparent, being uh, letting people know what we know. And that's why when, whenever I can get out in front of a group and, and try and allay the anxiety that we see very, very present in many of our communities, that we try and do that. And I think that the, the more we can put in context what the rhetoric is versus what the reality is, then people uh, start to feel, I think, better about it. We start to see people feeling more comfortable and going about the things that they would normally do. I agree to that, and the other part is to provide uh, additional resources and facts. Um, the World Trade Center Los Angeles and LA County Economic Development Corporation did a study just released in June, and we documented the number of foreign-owned establishments here in Southern California. And we're happy to announce that all of Southern California, from Ventura down to uh, San Diego, um, we have about 9,968 uh, foreign-owned establishments. And uh, total, uh, in total, they created over 439,000 jobs locally, contributing on a yearly basis $27 billion in annual wages. So in terms of employment, in terms of job creation, they were actually helping quite a lot, especially for this region. So I think get, getting, gathering this information, actually providing it to our elected officials. So as you're thinking about uh, the, the bill that uh, Senator uh, Cotton and Senator Perdue been introducing, the RAISE Act, which is called the Reform America's Immigration for Strong Employment. I think this is strong employment. We need to give them the, the truth and the, the information. So for our congressional members and for our senators to be able to really go to Washington, D.C. and actually have the, have the information to be able to prove to them that actually immigrants are creating really good jobs here and really helping our economy. Does, is there anybody, I'm curious if any of you think that city leaders should be doing things that you don't already see them doing? Um, and I mean that, again, defining leaders broadly, um, elected or advocacy or business. Um, is there anything that they could be doing um, that they're not yet already? Everybody's looking at me. <laughs> I think so. 
I, I mean, I wrote something, this thing that I wrote for, for this event. Perhaps not it, everybody's in, read it, so maybe. Invokes that, yes. So yes, I think so. I mean, if you accept the premise that um, you have a, an administration that's presenting a set of policies that, that um, impose a existential threat to your way of life, uh, and not just the business model, but the type of society that we're constructing here, um, you, there's, our constitutional system leaves lots of spaces for state and local governments to counteract federal policies, uh, to halt them, to resist them. Um, there's, and it's been done by uh, conservatives on lots of issues, from abortion to affirmative action to immigration itself. Um, Arizona undertook a legislative effort that was designed to impose state policies. Texas is doing it now. Uh, there's lots of room in our system, and a lot of um, what's being discussed, for example, uh, policies that regulate access to jails um, aren't a matter of statutes. They're certainly not a matter of constitution. They're, they're argued over. They have been argued over. There's long histories of litigation. You have previous policies um, on ICE access to jails which were successfully defeated in court. Uh, the Secure Communities Program that the Obama administration um, put forth, which actually um, resulted in higher rates of removal than this administration has managed, and, and a more draconian, immediate kind of relationship between immigration enforcement and local law enforcement um, was, w was counteracted by state and local governments uh, successfully and brought to an end. Um, so there's lots of space for litigation, for passing legislation that provokes litigation, uh, for taking court, court, uh, cases to this Supreme Court or to the circuit courts. Uh, it happened with a travel ban. Um, there's, there's lots of possibilities um, for our elected officials um, to, to take actions that don't merely um, that go beyond non-cooperation, that actually try to change the federal policies. Cindy, I saw, I saw Cindy nodding your head when, you, oh, we, came to, when we came to the term uh, Obama. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure, as probably most yeah. people in this audience know, Obama earned this moniker of deporter-in-chief. Yes. And I wonder, from your perspective, sort of what's different now than under the Obama administration? Um, there's a lot more bluster, as, uh, <laughs> um, as many have pointed out. Um, yeah, I mean, really, I think that, that we focus so much on Trump, and rightfully so, yes, the, the things he, say are really, um, he says are really uh, out there for a lot of people. Um, but I think we have to remember that Obama's policies were um, not very friendly to people who are in the country without legal status. And, um, you know, we had uh, record numbers of deportations. And not just that, but some of the policies that we set forward um, also uh, in regards to family detention. Obama expanded family detention. I mean, there are all these things that were done during his term, and I. And yes, there were people who were upset about it and raised a stink about it, but not as much as now under Trump, I feel like, <laughs> you know? Um, 
and 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 that to me is and maybe it is because of his rhetoric um but i think we really do need to look at the numbers and in regards to the removal rates during the first three months under um uh, trump uh, compared to the first uh, three months in, two, in 2014 under obama obama had more removals than trump did so i mean i think that that's kind of lost and and i mean sometimes the media we don't point that out right um uh, maybe we should more uh, so I think, but that, per regardless though, that perception is enough to really um, cause a lot of anxiety in the communities. And, um, and, 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 and because of that, I think that, um, you know, you had, for instance, also with like the travel ban, after the travel ban, people didn't want to travel anymore, like the story that I did. Um, but, I, but I don't think that people are kind of like cowering in fear and their closets and not wanting to come out, you know, that's not, that's not, I, I don't, at least I haven't stored, heard stories like that. People are still living their lives. Mm -hmm. I really do think they are. Um, if, uh, especially if they, I mean, it's, there are some stories of people really, um, you know, who have active orders of removal and yeah, maybe they are not leaving the house. But I think overall the community is just kind of, um, just more anxious, um, but they're still doing what they normally do. Um, that from from the, you know the people that I've spoken with who are on the ground, just I check in with a lot of different people, um, and it, it 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 just seems like the rhetoric is what really is uh, making a lot of people nervous. And so I think we have to kind of see maybe the numbers as you know we got to give it a little more time to see like what the numbers show in regards to removals. There are a lot more arrests, definitely, mm, yeah. um, a lot more arrests. Um, but anyway, I mean that's that, that's why I kind of nodded and I said yes, the removals. Because. And Cindy, I just want to stay with you for one second to ask sure. you a little bit. How do you think of your own role now, your role as a reporter in this era, in this city in particular? Um, what do you look to focus on? There's been some critiques very recently that there's too much um, focus on deportations, and we're all talking about this perception of anxiety and rhetoric. What, how do you conceive of what you do day to well, day? Um, I do, and then the reason why I know there's a lot more anxiety and, and people are a lot more nervous is because it's it's it, people aren't talking like they used to. I mean, uh, uh, just on the daily beat, like when I'm doing a story and I and I need to talk to people uh, to kind of get that human perspective, obviously, of how like a certain policy is going to affect um, people. Uh, they're a lot more reticent to talk on the record with their name in the paper, whereas before, um, I think they were a lot more willing to to speak out and expose themselves in that way. Um, so people definitely are more fearful in that aspect. They don't want to put out, they don't want to put their story out there. So it has made it a lot more difficult to kind of tell those stories. And I think that those stories are a lot more important now than ever <laughs> but, um, to kind of add that humanity behind all of this policy and this rhetoric. Um, but it is, it is taking a lot more time to get people to talk with me. Um, so that's just on a practical, like day-to-day -day level. Um, I, I've, I've done some on the, on the deportations and removals, but I've, I've been trying to do more stories in regards to kind of like the hypocrisy of it all. <laughs> um, there, I don't think, for instance, that there has been enough um, uh, written about or talked about in regards to employment uh, and, and the employers and, um, and, and jobs in regards to, there's so much focus on people who are in the country illegally and the jobs that they're supposedly taking, et cetera, et cetera. But not enough is written about or talked about in regards to the people who are employing them. 
And if we're really, and, you know, if you're really serious about clamping down on, um, you know, uh, immigration, uh, especially um, clandestine immigration, then you got to go after the employers. It's really interesting that we haven't really heard anything from the administration in regards to the employers. Mm -hmm. Texas, same thing. Mm -hmm. Nothing on the employers, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so, uh, so I think that um, I, that to me, I think it's kind of telling the stories that aren't being told. I've been trying to do that more. Um, you know, just kind of the, the hypocrisy of it, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> I'm curious to ask you all sort of a basic premise question. I, I said at the beginning that you could argue LA and California are some of the most welcoming places mm -hmm. to immigrants, both undocumented and not. And I wonder from anybody's perspective, is LA or Southern California more broadly the best place in the country to be an undocumented immigrant? Looks like you're volunteering, Cindy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've traveled a bit um, to, you know, uh, doing stories. Um, and, 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 and yeah, I mean, just just talking with people. I think that sometimes um, living in Southern California and, and, and you know, you have um, a certain amount of privilege in regards to have, you have like a, a large community, uh, especially if you're undocumented, that will kind of have your back, um, usually. Uh, but if you live in areas that are like rural, I don't know, in the south, <laughs> you might not have that, you know. Um, and, um, and it's a lot more of an isolating experience. You don't have that kind of community support like you do in California. I mean, there, there's a huge community here. There's, there are activists. There's a support system for people who are undocumented. But, and there are some areas in the country where you really don't have much at all. Yeah, I, you know, another aspect of this beyond uh, public policies and even public attitudes that's, uh, that's important to keep in mind um, is that the unauthorized population in California and especially in Southern California um, is very well established. I mean, primarily talking to people who've been here for a long time. The, uh, California didn't receive many people during the later stages of this migration in the aughts. We're really talking about people who primarily came here um, in the early 90s and through the mid 90s. So the average tenure of uh, the unauthorized immigrant in LA County is over 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, you have, uh, it's one out of every six children in LAUSD has uh, one or more uh, unauthorized parents. So we're talking about people who, who have been working in the same jobs for a long time, who've been living in the same houses for a long time, who have U.S. citizen children that have, uh, have grown <laughs> up as part of a community. So it's a very different experience than it was here 20 years ago, for sure, and very different than uh, in communities where this is a more recent phenomenon. Um, and, you know, while that's been going on while you've had a, a community that's not been growing particularly, um, that's been here for a long time, that hasn't created a lot of friction. Uh, the level of acceptance, uh, the level of just of not noticing, of just seeing people as part of a community, as, as neighbors, as co-workers, as parents at school, um, has increased quite dramatically. Uh, so it's a very particular circumstance here in talking about people who are very much part of this city and part of this region uh, now facing this, at least the rhetorical threat um, of extraordinary disruption. 
Can you talk a little bit about how that changed? I mean, it's so dramatic. I grew up in Riverside in the 1990s where at a public high school with lots of undocumented immigrants where nobody talked about it. It was not something to be open about at all. Um, how did that shift so dramatically over a relatively short amount of time? Well, it's been 20 years. So I mean, it's that's that's you know a chunk of time. Um, I guess it depends if you're. Yeah, a I don't need to age you. Yeah, I know. Just in history, from, twenty years is not that long. Yeah, no, it's not that long. In people's lives, though, twenty years is is a True. long time. True. Um, how did it happen? Um, you know, a lot of it was you know the accumulation of commonplace events. Um, it, 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 it is the passage of time in which um, people led lives that were not extraordinary. They went to work, they raised their kids, they found a place to live, they became neighbors, you know, overwhelmingly law-abiding, ordinary folks. Um, and, uh, and people who were uncomfortable um, with a multiracial community, people who were uncomfortable with a multilingual community, people who were uh, uncomfortable with a lot of strange and different folks living here, have uh, many of them have left. <laughs> you know, they've moved, and there was a big movement out since the 1990s. Uh, people were able to cash in on their, uh, their real estate and move out, and they moved to the Intermountain West, to Arizona, to other places. And, so you, and, and then there's an element of positive self-selection. So people who have come here in the last 10 years, I mean, nobody comes to LA thinking it's an all-white city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you'd have to be, it's like, oh, shoot, what did I, you know? I got off at the wrong stop. You know, I mean, so it, it hasn't, you don't have a lot of people getting, coming here by mistake. And you have many people who have been attracted by what this place is. Um, and they've been attracted by what the unauthorized population brings to this city. They are a positive influence in this city. You can't talk about a population that's one out of every 10 adults um, in a place that we consider modestly successful at this point. Um, and think that they're kind of an incubus. I mean, that they're uh, people apart or that they're somehow a negative influence. So people have come here knowing that there are lots of immigrants, knowing that there are a lot of unauthorized immigrants, and they're cool with it. So, you know, you, you, that has constructed a place that we're really, and I think it's still fragile. Yeah, because I was going to say, however, uh, during the same time, immigrants have become criminalized. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, starting with Clinton, for instance, during the Clinton administration, uh, minor, minor offenses and you know, minor crimes became felonies under immigration law. Um, so the matter of people who ended up, you know, say, and then uh, during Obama, um, you know, uh, deportations uh, went up and the people who were deported, you know, they were, they were uh, formally deported and just re-entering became a crime, a felony. Sure. Sure. So, um, so I, to, to me, I, I think it's interesting how you say that people who led ordinary lives, and you're right, yeah. um, you know, they were just going yeah. along with their lives, but at the same time, just like, for instance, um, something very small could become something huge and can get you deported now, right. Uh, right. during Obama, too. Right. So, I yeah. think that, to me, I think that's really interesting how, even though while we've kind of, they've become part of the community in many ways, you know, uh, people who are in the country unauthorized, and uh, at the same time, they become very much criminalized. 
Stuart, can you talk a little bit, I don't know to what extent you know this, but to how different is this among um, different groups, for yeah. country of origin? Yeah. People from El Salvador versus people from China versus somebody coming from Korea. What, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I was uh, asked you as a previous question about, um, you know, is this a, a welcoming place for <laughs> undocumented uh, immigrants? And you also mentioned your own past in Riverside. Um, it reminded me that the immigrant population here is so diverse and all the, the experiences are so different that many times, you know, for example, there are a lot of Asian undocumented immigrants, but people don't look at them that way. I think a lot of people, let's be honest, and imme immediately the, 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 I think the, the rhetoric right now is that they're Latino. Mm -hmm. And so there's also this model minority kind of myth that, that for the Asian Americans that we experience. And so I think it's that experience as a whole in terms of uh, growing up here in, in San Gabriel Valley, uh, where you know, at one point in my high school, there's like 50% Asian folks. And so it's normalized, it's, we, we felt accepted. But I also remembered being called a chink, uh, being called a ching chong China man, right here in San Gabriel Valley. And I remember going to a Denny's once in Riverside actually, and uh, a waitress came up to me and asked me whether I needed chopsticks. Yes, if you have it. Do you have it? <laughs> no, then, right? But that kind of racism is here. It's right here in our backyard. And, um, and this is the thing about this. Uh, you look, at, look back at history in terms of the fear of jobs being taken, in terms of being able to kind of place a certain group of outsider as the, as the, the bad guys. It reminded me of the, uh, the 1882 uh, Chinese Exclusion uh, Act, where there was a law that was passed by our Congress that it's a 10-year ban from having Chinese Americans immigrate to the United States after they've been here to build the railroads, after they've been here to mine the, the gold. And once became, the resources became a bit more tight, then basically they became uh, the bad guys. So when that happened, what happened was the Japanese Americans, the Japanese moved here and took over some other jobs. And then in 1924, I believe, it's a National Origins Act came in and also banned all Asians, uh, along with uh, uh, Middle Eastern uh, folks. Of, uh, so there are a lot of changes. That, this is a history, a pattern that's repeating itself. And go back, it goes back to Cindy's point earlier in terms of people not wanting to leave, um, fearing that coming back they'd be hassled. In the Chinese Exclusionary Act back in 1882, people couldn't leave because once they leave, they wouldn't be able to come back. So all those immigrants that came here, all these Chinese laborers that came here had to stay here and they can't bring their family over. And this is what the RAISE Act is actually causing some more concern because if you lower the number of family-based immigrants that are coming over here, so you're welcoming these investors that are coming here. So they come here, they create great jobs, and what are they going to do? Just stay here by themselves for the next 10 years without their family? <laughs> they can't bring them over here? I mean, what kind of life is that? So it will have a longer impact in terms of making sure that, that, that our region continues to attract the best and brightest. And I don't think these policies are really conducive of that. And it's making a lot of people think twice. And I don't think we really thought through the long-term impact of some of these rhetorics. Mm -hmm. uh, and meanwhile, Canada with uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is like, welcome, we love everybody. <laughs> And I don't know whether you saw, but there are a lot more uh, application for, uh, for immigration to, to Canada from the United States. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's concerning. Sheriff, before we open it up to questions from the audience, I wanted to ask you about the bill that's currently in the state legislature that would severely restrict 
um, local law enforcement cooperation with ICE. And it's something that former Attorney General um, Holder has backed and Chief Beck has backed, and I know you've opposed. Can you talk a little bit about why you're opposed to that and what kind of impact do you think it would have? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's so misunderstood. The the rhetoric behind that, I I think, is kind of the public perception uh, in pushing that through. I'm I'm not a a strong uh, political person one way or the other, but I'm a police officer from my whole adult life. And in a focus on how do we keep all of our people safe, if ICE is not allowed into the jail, right, where they focus on an individual who by law, the Trust Act and the Truth Act, California state law, has to be uh, convicted of a serious or violent crime before they can have access to them at all. And then uh, once, they, uh, once they're released, if, they don't, if ICE does not get access to them, they go back into the community where they came from and if there are people who are likely to recidivate, that puts then the individual, uh, the individuals in the undocumented community at greater risk. Likewise, if ICE does not have access to the jail to focus on those that are get found guilty of those type of crimes, then they'll go in, ICE goes into the community. They will not only take away the individual that was their original target, but if there are people present who are undocumented, family members, neighbors, whoever, ICE will take them as well. So from my perspective, uh, Senate Bill 54 puts in jeopardy the undocumented community at a a much greater extent than any other community. Um, But certainly my focus is on public safety. How do we draw that balance between public trust and public safety? And I think the Trust Act and the Truth Act, which have been in place for about two years now, have given us that balance between the two. Uh, It's working for us to take it to uh, to this next level, I believe then puts all of us in jeopardy. Thank you. So I can hear from the audience that there's uh, probably lots of other questions and discussion about that. And I think we are going to open it up for questions. My name is Pablo Alvarado. I am the director of uh, Andilon, the National Day Labor Organizing Network. Earlier this year, to be specific, in uh, March uh, 21st, a group of uh, janitors and day laborers um, submitted a uh, request for records all to the public about uh, your efforts to kill SB 54, the bill proposed by uh, the Senate President Kevin DeLeon. It is clear by everyone now that uh, you and the other sheriffs across the the state are, um, are in an effort here to bully Senator Kevin DeLeon and the governor uh, and to make sure that the bill is watered down. And this is the single most important piece of legislation in the country to protect our state from the racist mass deportation policies of the, of the Trump administration. Uh, and you are opposing it. The question submitted by the SEIU, by SEIU and the Day Labor Network um, was about what is it that you were talking about with the, with the administration, what, what were you talking about, and who you were talking with. Uh, and you have failed to respond to that public record request as, um, as, as required by California law. So yesterday, in a press conference, you, if you don't want if you, if you to have that... We have limited time. I'll, I'll use my loud voice. I have a very loud voice, too. <laughs> so yesterday... <laughs> so yesterday... 
<laughs> yesterday during a press conference uh, about um, SB 54, you said, and I quote, um, that the SB 54 would provide a safe haven for serious and violent criminals, and you stated it again. So rather than ask you a question today and give you the opportunity to keep spreading misinformation and, and fear in our community, I just want to tell you that uh, we want you to answer those questions in court since you failed to respond to us to, to the public record request. So earlier today, our lawyer filed the, the, the lawsuit, um, and we're serving you today. So Sheriff. Can we, can we please give the sheriff an opportunity to respond? If I, if I could address that. If, if, huh? We're not going to stop. Please. If we could give the sheriff an opportunity to respond. I think the sheriff, sheriff, if you can respond quickly so that we can make sure that we have time for questions from sure. the audience. Thank you. Sure. I, I, I respect your position. Uh, that is not the position. There's, I would have no reason to take the position if I didn't feel that it was in the interest of public safety for all of our communities. If you don't allow ICE in the jail to be able to deal with those that we believe have a greater chance of going out and victimizing people in the community, then that's going to happen. They'll be victimized once. Please. Second, if ICE doesn't get uh, access to the jail, ICE is still going to do what they do. They're going to instead go out in the community, and like I mentioned, they're going to go after whoever their target was that they could have gotten in an orderly fashion in the custody environment, and instead find them in the community. And when they do that, they'll not only take the individual, but their family or whoever's there that's not documented. Yeah, really, yeah. And ICE will, and ICE will tell you that. How do uh, anybody on the panel have advice for those kids who are concerned about filling out their FAFSA forms or their college applications? That's a great question. Does anybody here feel like they want to take a crack at answering it? Well, I mean, it. it well, I mean, it depends. I, I you know, it, it depends on on the. Uh, the child and their circumstances, a lot of those children uh, of the unauthorized are U.S. citizens. They have no problem filling out FAFSA forms or seeking financial aid or exercising any of the other rights of, of U.S. citizens. In fact, by far the majority of the, those children that I mentioned, the one in six, who have an unauthorized parent are themselves U.S. citizens and have Social Security numbers and are eligible for benefits. They should have no fears. Um, and they should exercise their, their rights as citizens um, abundantly. Um, you know, at, uh, an early childhood arrival who, ha who came here out of status and is now um, 17 or 18 is in a really difficult situation. I mean, a really awful, awful situation of uncertainty um, because of uh, as you know, the, the 2012 program instituted by uh, President Obama that created a kind of a, a temporary reprieve for those 
individuals is now in, uh, faces a very uncertain future, and and um, and that's a lot of children who are um, experiencing really significant difficulties um, in knowing how to lead their lives. And uh, uh, prior to working on international trade, I actually uh, started as a social worker. And I used to work for an organization called the Asian Pacific American Legal Center, now called the Asian Americans Advancing Justice. There are a lot of nonprofit organizations that are actually able to provide legal advice, pathetic legal aid. I think uh, for those uh, parents and for those uh, uh, students that are not quite sure, they should get legal advice and they can get it uh, uh, pro bono and get it at free of cost. And there are a lot of great community service agencies that can provide that kind of service. So I would highly encourage they reach out to those nonprofits to get some legal advice as well, just to be sure. And just to add, I think the LAUSD themselves are really grappling with these questions. Administrators are trying to figure out what the advice they should be giving students is. Next question is on your left. Hi, my name is Jen Lawson, and my question is for Stephen Chung. You had mentioned uh, tourism as an important part of the California economy and how immigration policy affects that. But have you thought about another important sector of the California economy, which is science and technology? And these immigration policies by Trump that are preventing um, foreign-born professors that are supposed to start at some of our, our, our universities here, um, very promising, very bright graduate students from all over the world that are being prevented from taking their proper places in our graduate programs and at our universities. And then just the science and technology talent that the state relies on to kind of push our economy and our state forward. And, you know, they're not able to. Yes, I think this is a huge concern for us, uh, for, for everybody. Uh, but actually, the, the RAISE Act that they're talking about actually gives preference to folks with advanced degrees in science and technology, so it benefits them. I think for, for, from my perspective, just a personal perspective, um, I came here uh, as a low-income immigrant, and I would have never passed the test to qualify to come over here. So I, I think to only uh, limit the immigration to folks that are at the very top of the game to bring them over here, that might be a policy that can induce uh, immediate short-term effect, but sometimes you just don't know the hidden potential of individuals. So I think, you know, from a personal perspective, um, again, looking at the history of the United States and looking at the history of Los Angeles County and this entire region, we should welcome these talented individuals and give them the opportunity to immigrate here and actually contribute if that's what they choose to do so. So yes, science technology, uh, uh, whether it's uh, aerospace and defense, whether it's teachers, whether it's social workers, whether it's you don't have to be a millionaire to be able to come to the United States. That shouldn't be our, our policy. That's my personal opinion. And I think what you're saying is very true. And I encourage you to continue to push our legislators from both sides of the aisle to really understand that um, as residents of this region, we're contributing to the economy. And they should look at foreign-born residents and immigrants as an asset and not as a liability. I also agree with what you said about even if we are able to get that talent to come here, if they're not able to bring their spouses, if they're not able to bring their children, if they're not able to bring their families, they're going to go to France, they're going to go to Canada, mm -hmm. they're going to go to the UK, they're going to go somewhere else with that talent. Because even if they themselves are welcomed, you know, what, what really do we have here for them if they can't bring what's important to them with them? Next question. 
Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Alex Medina. I work for the Community Clinic Association. So my question is actually for Cindy. Um, one of the things that we always ask our, uh, our member clinics to provide are like patient stories, and they're really having difficulty getting those stories. How do you sort of, what are some tips, like three tricks that they could try <laughs> to get those advocacy stories that sort of illustrate the importance of immigration and accessing healthcare? You mean talking to the, just talking to patients to who patients. are yeah who are here unauthorized. That's tricky because the thing is that you want to be very transparent with with people who are here unauthorized. I mean, I I um I always let people know if they're in the country without authorization that the story that uh, I work for a major news publication and it goes online and everyone will see it, including law enforcement officials, including immigration and customs enforcement. Because you want to make sure that you're transparent with them, um, and and then you know sometimes they don't want to talk uh, more so now, <laughs> so it's become a real struggle. Um, but sometimes they're totally okay with it, and they're fine with that. Um, so I think I think that that's really important uh, because you don't you don't want to get yourself in a position where you'll have someone removed because you told their story and they're, you know, but you want to make sure that they're informed, right? Um, and and, and I, I, I try to tell people, look, it's really important for people to put a face to um, these policies that are happening because otherwise people aren't going to know the real human impacts. So, I mean, that's, you know, and, and I think in, in some communities um, it's harder to gain trust than in other communities. I think it just takes kind of, I don't know, I, you know, t just talking to people and spending time with them and maybe, um, but I do think it's very important, especially um, in these days, to let them know that they are going to be exposed in some way. Next question is on your left. My name is Paul Soka. I'm an organizer with the Youth Justice Coalition. I was brought here as a child of a refugee in 1981, and when I was 16, I became parentless, and I ended up being tried as an adult and treated through the adult criminal justice system. I am labeled the violent offender. When we speak of violent offenders, I am one. But since I've been released, I've been doing community service. I've been supporting the community. I've been feeding the homeless. I've been doing church. I've been working. I've been doing everything great. But the system doesn't give us anything. And we need SB 54 to protect us. Thank you. Question. Um, my name is Noah, and this is for the sheriff. First of all, thank you, sheriff, for coming out. I'm sure you knew exactly what you were getting into when you came down here. So once again, um, thank you. Um, my question is is this. Uh, obviously, you're holding position to, um, on SB 54 mm -hmm. that is against um, the feelings of some very uh, passionate mm -hmm. people. But as a public safety officer, I also understand your perspective. Isn't there a way to work with other sheriffs and political office holders in Sacramento and find a way to make SB 54 work for all the stakeholders, such as yourself, but also such as community leaders, trying to find a balance mm -hmm. between uh, public safety but also the strength of the community? And if that's not feasible, why not? You know, we have been trying to find it. It's, uh, the Senate Bill 54 has changed uh, quite a bit since it was first introduced. And it has been that working back and forth, dealing with uh, Senator DeLeon and his staff, uh, dealing with other, other stakeholders to be able to try and get something that just uh, drew that balance between public safety and public trust. 
There is nothing more important to us than public trust. We've worked very hard to get it. It's a work in progress all the time. And so to, to have something come along, in this case, uh, this bill, where it would force ICE into the communities and where they would be deporting people that they, they wouldn't otherwise get access to because they would find their target in the jail environment, to me is, is hurtful because we've worked so hard to be where we are today. And likewise, the individuals who are in custody, who, who have been convicted of, uh, of a crime covered by the Trust Act, if, if those individuals then go back into the community, not all of them are going to commit more crimes, but some of them certainly are. And the population they're most likely to commit these crimes against are the people who live around them. And that's the case with anyone. And so when you look at that from a standpoint of taking a step back, this is a public safety issue, not a political issue. And politics is clouding where we are on this. And for, for those of us who've taken a stand, certainly it's not an easy one, it's not a popular one, but I believe it's the right thing because we're trying to protect people at the end of the day. I'd uh, like to take you up on, on that argument for just a second. Um, so you've raised two issues. Right. One, the issue of collateral arrests, and the other is the release of potentially mm -hmm. uh, dangerous people. Um, let's start with the question of collateral arrests. So mm -hmm. let's, let's all agree that collateral arrests aren't a good idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, this is the notion that um, ICE will go to an address that was listed as a place where a felon lived sometime. Mm -hmm. Could be 10 years ago. And they'll knock on the door and say, is so-and-so here? No, never heard of the guy. All right, never mind. Everybody here, line up against the wall. We want to know who you are. Mm -hmm. No other federal agent would do that. A, a, a US Marshal executing a warrant, a, a fugitive warrant, would not be allowed to do that. Right. A sheriff's officer could not go to an apartment to serve a fugitive warrant and say, oh, never mind, you, are you behind on child support payments? Mm -hmm. Do you have parking tickets? Mm -hmm. What else have I got here? I'll take whatever I find. So it's not a matter of state law facilitating that. This is a matter of ICE policies, which are anomalous, which, which violate basic law enforcement procedures as they are executed by agencies, starting with the Marshal Service, starting with the LA County Sheriff's Department, that deal with much more dangerous people every day. Mm -hmm. And on much more dangerous missions, do not engage in collateral arrests. Mm -hmm. So this is a matter of choice by ICE. To use the notion, and it is a notion, that they are targeting dangerous people as a way of opening up large segments of the population for enforcement mm -hmm. and leaving aside all of the procedures that any other law enforcement agency would have to go through in order to justify their presence in somebody's home. Right. So the answer, to my mind, um, is changing ICE procedures and maybe a state law is the way to force them to change. Be, but it is not, you know, it, it, it is not, there are, your department, mm -hmm. the Marshal Service, the FBI, the LAPD is just as dedicated to public safety and yet does not engage in wholesale collateral arrests. 
And the truth of the matter of what's happened in the last six months, what we do know is that the number of people who have been detained for removal, who have no criminal records, who have been apprehended as a result of collateral arrests, is the one increase. There has a dramatic increase. There has not been an increase in the removal of people who by any criteria could be judged a public safety threat. You know, the other point you raised was about the release of people who are potentially dangerous into the community. Mm. Well, you deal with that all the time, whether they're, they're immigrants or not. Right. I mean, we have a criminal justice system that has in place, or should have in place, a whole series of measures that are designed to prevent potentially dangerous people from being released into the community. Right? Once, once somebody does their time, they're released into the right. community. That's right, because we have a law enforcement and a criminal justice system that assigns a penalty, you know, where you, you go through an entire process that says, if you've been found guilty of this crime, this is the penalty that we think is appropriate for public safety. We have laws, we have judges, we have courts that determine this is what is adequate to protect the public. We create an exception for ICE, where they get to decide. And the, the, the issue has become muddied because over the course of 20 years, going back to the Bush administration, the definition of what constitutes somebody who, a, a non-citizen who is potentially dangerous, now includes somebody who's got a couple of DUIs and a Brooklyn taillight. You know, they've consistently lowered the barrier of what constitutes that threshold to the point where dozens of jurisdictions, dozens of sheriff's departments sued ICE under the Obama administration to end the Secure Communities Program because they were consistently issuing detainers for people who pose no conceivable threat. So they lost credibility. You know, if every time there was a detainer, you knew this was somebody who was genuinely, from your judgment, mm -hmm. somebody who you had to be preoccupied about, that would be one thing. But that's not the case. And it hasn't been the case for over a decade. Yeah, and I see where you're coming from. And from an ideal standpoint, if you could do something nationally that would reshape that, well, then you've got something well, yes. there. But the let me problem finish. was in Washington. Yeah, but what we're trying to do is manage our own environment here and to do the best we can from a public safety standpoint to protect the residents of Los Angeles. I understand that. Next question is on your left. Okay. My name is Linda Alvarez, and I um, am listening to what you were saying before all of this discussion about SB um, 54. And um, I'm curious, when I hear this is such a welcoming community to immigrants now, that Los Angeles is kind of a model of what um, the rest of the country even should be. Um, well, I hear about the problems, but I also wonder what, do, and you talk about the impact of what's happening now, but what about the future? What do we see for the future in, with uh, the impact of the, the Trump um, and the policies that are being brought forward now? Great question. Says to me. Who wants to take the first track of that? Well, I'll take a shot at it, only in that uh, when you look at some of the rhetoric that we've heard uh, with the mass deportation of, uh, of potentially millions of people, it's not something that's practical. It's not something that is even possibly achievable. So I think we all need to take a, a step back from that and realize that it is what it is, it's rhetoric. And what we're trying to do then is to focus on 
you know, protecting our communities and in, in, in dealing with ICE, we're trying to manage the environment. So we focus ICE on the jail environment, not going out into the communities. Stephen, you want to take a crack? What's the future hold? I, I see it as very positive. Um, I think uh, looking back at history, we've gone through uh, periods of um, anti-immigrant sentiment, and, and there are some uh, legislation, there are some actions that you know I don't think as Americans we should be proud of. But we've overcome that, and I think we'll continue to do so. I think with this conversation, with kind of the, the audience uh, uh, sentiments as well, it's very clear that there's a very strong passion to, to fight for immigrant rights and make sure that, again, um, as, as the, really the paragon for, for what the rest of the nation should be, not only should we take care of the, the population here, but we should really set the example for the rest of um, the, the United States. So I, I, I think we're going to stay strong. I'm, maybe I'm foolishly optimistic, <laughs> but maybe that's L.A. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great point to end our program tonight. Um, that's all the time that we have for Q&A, but I hope that everyone will stick around to join us for the reception, which is just out these doors um, in the auditorium where you came in. Before we end, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I want to thank the California Wellness Foundation for making this program possible and the Japanese American National Museum for hosting Zocalo in their space. We also want to thank all of you for joining us and, of course, our panelists. A round of applause. <laughs>